0: Please stand for the reading of God's word, coming today from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 8. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, and make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." Now. I was cut bare to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king, live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Uh, Thanks, Andrew, for leading us through that passage. Uh, My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. Good to be back from vacation. A special thanks to uh, Pastor Nathan Dix, our denominations campus minister at Boston University, and to Pastor Tim Chang, uh, a local pastor, for filling in for me while I was out. But now we are back. And as uh, Greg said... The fall is essentially upon us, so we are starting in on a new endeavor. We're starting in on the book of Nehemiah. It's going to take us all the way through uh, the fall up until Advent, up until Christmas time. And it's a series that I'm calling A Time to Rebuild. The book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah's efforts to lead the people of God to rebuild the ruined city of Jerusalem after it had been completely destroyed by the Babylonian invasion and exile in the year 586 BC. Uh, In that invasion, the walls of the city had been completely broken down. Its gates, as it said, had been burned by fire. And some 140 years after that initial destruction is when this book takes place. So these things are not fresh. This is long since past. This would be more maybe like talking about uh, the Civil War or World War I than it would be about something that just happened a few years ago. But this is the aftermath of what has happened So this city that was once a vibrant city is not a vibrant city. In the ancient world, a city without walls was completely defenseless. Uh, It was without safety or predictability. Anything that you might count as a regular part of life was down. This is like a body without an immune system. That's what an ancient city without walls was. It had no defenses, no predictability at any time. You could be under pressure, under attack, under threat from anyone or anything. You had nothing to protect you. And so for Jerusalem, it had been 140 years without predictability. 140 years without safety. We've seen some long wars in the past decades. We haven't seen anything like 140 years without predictability, without safety, just in ruins. It was certainly a time to rebuild. But for us... After two, going on three years of a global pandemic, going on many longer years of cultural and political upheaval, following gun violence, following years of racial prejudice and violence, economic struggles, inflation that's making life increasingly expensive, our environment deteriorating and heat waves, fires, floods, And more particularly to CTK here in Cambridge, it's been two years up until I started in May without a permanent pastor. And it was also a time of transitioning away from being this network of churches here in the greater Boston area to just us. Let's be honest. That's a lot, right? We can all just say... That's a lot to happen at one particular time, and then for us in our congregation, in our context, to have that happen on top of all those things. So it is certainly for us as well, I believe, a time to rebuild, a time to refocus our hearts and our efforts on something, on the work of God, on God himself, on his kingdom, its presence, power, and impact in our place and time. So my hope is that through this series, through this book, that we will get to focus on ways that we, in particular, as individuals, and we corporately as a group, as a church, can start to rebuild the walls of our faith, of our spiritual life and practices, of just our basic participation in Christian community, getting out of my home and getting into community with others, uh, rebuilding our trust, perhaps. That maybe has been damaged just by the culture and society that we're in and the way that we've learned to slowly distrust each other a little bit. Maybe trust has been damaged for you in being here in part of the pastoral transition or network transition that happened. I'm hoping that we can also rebuild our our practices of service and generosity that though we may be, some of us, burned out right now, my hope is that we would not stay burned out. That God does not mean to leave us in a particular place, but to bring us somewhere new. And my hope is that through all of this, we will see God as the one who is working in and for and through us to rebuild. Not ourselves by ourselves, but God working in us, just as He works in this ancient time through Nehemiah and the people of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, they get rebuilt i uh, just going to put that out there for you. If you haven't read the book, now you know. So um, we hopefully will come back from being a spiritual city, a spiritual group that is without walls, to being a people who can be, for one another and for our city, a strong refuge. So today we're going to look at the beginnings of this story of rebuilding the city and through it hopefully start finding some help for our own beginnings of a story of rebuilding Uh, There is so much that I wish we could get to. Each of our passages each week is going to be long, so I am inevitably going to have to leave a lot of things on the table. If you have questions after the service about the passage, I may not know, but I can try. There are going to be some things that I can get to. Feel free, bring your questions. I'd love to talk with you after the service, but today we're going to focus primarily on the news of Jerusalem's sad state in 1 verse 3 how that news changes Nehemiah, and then what a changed Nehemiah does. So just the news, how that changes Nehemiah, and what that change does. And kids, I know you're with us this morning. As Mr. Greg said, excited to have you with us. I'm going to tell you things adults don't listen. This is just for the kids to know. I'm giving you the secret inside line on what we're going to talk about, okay? There are three things you get to listen for inside each of these points, like a secret code. The first word is exile. It's a fancy word. If you don't know what it is, make your parents spell it for you. Second word is problem. And the third word is risk, okay? Exile, problem, and risk. If you're doing your sermon worksheets, I will consider you to have faithfully filled out those worksheets if you just captured those three words and ideas. If you want to draw those things, if you want to draw a silly picture of me, that's fine. I love it. You're here. You're with us. I'm glad you're with us. But kids, don't tell your parents. That's what we're going to talk about. So would you pray with me before we dive in? Let's pray. God, we come in our own time uh, where we feel in many ways like a city without walls, like walls that are broken down uh, with some uncertainty about the future, feeling that vulnerability and insecurity of knowing that any time something could happen, uh, a pandemic could get worse, economics could get worse, our relationships could get worse, and we just feel in so many ways, I'm sure, God, I know I feel vulnerable and tired. So God, we ask that you would come and that your rest would be upon us. That on this day of rest that you have given us, this Sabbath, that just as your Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in creation like a mother hen gathering her chicks to her, that you would be the one by your Spirit hovering over us, gathering us to you gently, calmly, quietly. Would you do that for our hearts this morning in some small way at the very least? Because you are good and you are beautiful and you are loving. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump right into the news of Jerusalem's Sad State. If you have your Bibles or if you want to use the hardback one in front of you, feel free to have those open. We're going to go through our text together this morning. Uh, It's in chapter 1, verse 3, that Nehemiah gets this news about those that are still living in Jerusalem. They're called the remnant, those that have survived, uh, that haven't been deported to Babylon, which is what would happen to uh, the most developed, the most uh, elite, the most skilled people people were taken out of their place and taken as servants more often than not to Babylon and those that were that were disadvantaged that were poor that didn't have access to certain things those were left on the land to sort of work the land for their new masters so he gets this news about those that are left over and he finds out what the condition of their life is like and what we see is that it's a life in ruins it is still a city that is in trouble and shame from their exile. Cherokees, exile. Exile was what God had warned them all throughout Scripture, going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, would happen to his people if instead of living as a light to the world, showing the whole world what God is like through their lives, through the ways that they live, through how they treated each other. And being ministers, he calls them to be a whole kingdom of priests, that everyone that was his person was to be a priest, to be someone that was ministering to the world around them to make it better, to make it new, to make it whole. If they weren't living as those people, eventually there would be a consequence to totally walking away from God and the calling that he had given them. And that consequence would be that he would send them away from that very land where they were to be his representatives, his little mirrors showing people what he is like, and that they would have to face this corrective, painful consequence to bring them back to God That though, yes, this would be a punishment of sorts, that ultimately this is meant to be a discipline to bring them back. That they would once again be the people he called them to be who were a light to the nations, who were a kingdom of priests, who were a group entirely from top to bottom of ministers. Uh, We could say it a different way, kids, of helpers. That's what God has called us to be, called his people to be. But after centuries of warning his people, of warning Israel and Judah and Jerusalem again and again that they were walking the wrong way, that they were falling away from being this light to the nations, eventually they got so bad that God had to send them into exile. It was no longer fitting for them to be his representatives there. It was no longer fitting for the way they lived to be in any way, shape, or form a reflection of who God is. And so he sent them out. And now after 140 years of having been devastated and sent out in a city lying in rubble, Nehemiah hears that what seems to be a recent attempt, if we go to the book of Ezra, and Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of one whole unit, in the book of Ezra in chapter four, it seems there was an attempt that Ezra, a priest, had gotten started to rebuild this city of God, to come back from exile, that that attempt to rebuild had gotten stopped completely in its tracks. And that the walls of the city were still broken down. And the gates of the city had still been destroyed by fire. That yet again, hope was crushed. And yet again, predictability was off the table. This seems to be the news that Nehemiah receives. He would have known about the pain of exile. He had already been in it. But now this fresh hope that the people of God had, that this might start to turn around, had fallen apart again. The people are still living under the shame and the pain of their exile. The shame of having become so bad that they had to be cast out. Their shame is the reason that they are in exile. And the trouble that they experience is the reality of that shame lived out. That's why our text says they are in trouble and shame. Those are just the hallmarks of what it is to live in exile. Both are apparent to Nehemiah, their shame and their trouble. And what was a moment of hope with Ezra for coming back from vulnerability, as we said, is now gone. They are still outcasts, still exiles, still. Which turns us to how this news lands on Nehemiah, how it changes him for our second consideration Nehemiah hears this news, and in verse four of chapter one, it really says it just dropped him to the ground. It says he just sat down and wept. That is not something that we commonly do. I don't know how many times you, maybe kids, maybe you do this a lot. Some of my kids have done this, right? You just sit down and weep. But when you get bigger, it doesn't happen as much, where you just stop everything you're doing and sit down and cry and cry and cry. What the text is trying to convey to us is, this is something that absolutely just guts him, levels him to hear this. And it says that he mourned, not for a few minutes, but actually for days, and days and days, the text would have us say he was fasting and praying because it says this started in the month of Kislev, and that it was all the way until the month of Nisan, which is four months later, that he actually had this first conversation with the king. So it was a period of four months that he was fasting, grieving, and praying. This was life-changing for him. This is not something that you see on Instagram or in the news and you think, oh, that's really sad and then the rest of the day goes by and you don't think about it again. This was something that he saw and that changed him, and he had to stop living the way he was living, and his life started becoming different because of this news. You might know what that feels like. You might know what it's like to get that kind of news that changes your world from one day to the next. That's the kind of news that this was for Nehemiah. One commentator puts it this way, that Nehemiah wrestles so deeply with the pain of this news that his life is actually changed by that wrestling. Nehemiah enters so deeply into the pain that it changes him. He lets himself be consumed by it, not over a day, not over hours, but over months and months. He sits with this. He he simmers in this until it changes him. It becomes the center of his world, becomes something that he can't stop thinking about, that he can't stop talking about, that he has to address. It's shifted the whole focus of his life and he can't get his heart off of it. And we can see through his prayer in verses 8 through 11, and his whole list of actions in chapter 2, that whatever his plans were before, whatever he thought he might do in the course of his life, in this prestigious position that he had inside the citadel that was was at least a retreat, but sometimes a more regular residence for the king of the empire at that time, and he's a cupbearer, which was a, a position of influence in the kingdom. Whatever he thought he might do through this prestigious position that he had, that's changed now. That was his life before the news. Whatever his plans were before now, the plans of his life are going to revolve around trying to do something about this, about what's happened to his city. He's trying to do something to rebuild the place, being attacked by a fly trying to rebuild the place where the people of God could meet with God and where his name would dwell. That's what it says in verse 9, which is another way of saying a place where you could meet with God personally. That's what it is to know God's name, is to know him personally. He's become consumed with what's happened to the place where you can know God personally, and he has a desire to return the place back to a, a, a flourishing where you could actually know God personally. Because at this time, that's what it looked like. That was the way that you knew God concretely. You met with him there, with his people, at the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle. That's how you knew him. And he wants to do that, even if it means taking a big risk. Because, as verse 2 of chapter 2 says, he was scared to make this request of the king. It would have been risky for a cupbearer to not only act sad in front of the king, which was not what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to be happy. You were supposed to be kind of the life of the party and keeping things going. This was a breach of proper behavior in front of the king. So it's not just risky to look sad in front of him, but two, it would be risky to ask all of these things of the king for a people that had been conquered. These are not his people. This is the empire that he governs. He doesn't owe anything to them. He's gonna ask a lot of this king for a people who are not his people. Imagine a Ukrainian coming from the Luhansk province, somehow in the service of Vladimir Putin, begging Vladimir Putin to make all these changes to rebuild a city that he had just destroyed. That would be exceedingly risky. Nehemiah feels rightly scared to be making this big request, but he takes it because this is what has a hold of his heart. This is what his life is about now. Whatever may happen to him, this is what he has to do. In a word, what's happened is that he has made their problems his problems. That's what's happened to Nehemiah. He has stepped into the pain of their world. And he does the kinds of things you would do if you were living in their world. If your walls were broken down, if you had no opportunities, if you had no future, you would sit, you would have no appetite and grief, you would be mourning, you would be praying, life would be hard. Nehemiah does the kind of things that show that though he is living in some palace far away, he is spiritually entered into the problems and the life of these people. And he is going to try to not just enter in spiritually, but to actually step into their world physically and do something about it, to fix it, to change it. I think we could say that what he is doing with his prayers, his fasting, all the actions of chapter two is he is saying, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem. That's what Nehemiah is saying in his heart here. If you've got a problem, I've got a problem. There's a song by Joy Oladokun called If You've Got a Problem that expresses this mindset, I think, really well. I don't think she's a Christian self-professed by her own website, but some of the lyrics really hit home for this attitude. She says, when the light is gone and you're on your own, You've been trying, but the fight never goes away. And you don't know when the sun will shine again. All you've got to do is look my way. Because if you've got a problem, i got a problem too. If you're standing at the bottom, I'll reach out for you. If you need someone to lean on, I can be strong. I will carry you through. Because if you've got a problem, i got a problem too. Nehemiah says this morning, through his morning, through his prayers, through his requests to the king, Jerusalem, people of God, exiles, those who are disadvantaged and forgotten. If you've got a problem, I've got a problem. And in that, Nehemiah reveals the heart of God for us. Because this is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. He makes our problems his problem. By becoming human, he stepped into the pain, into the trouble, into the world that is broken by sin and the rubble that it makes out of our lives and our relationships. He stepped in, he incarnated, which is what that word means, into our world, into our trouble. He entered in to the point that his life was changed by our problems until he didn't just care about humanity, but he became human. That's how much he cared. That's how much his problems were our problems, that he took them on until the point that he sweat and bled and died for us as one of us. In his incarnation, he was saying, if you've got a problem, humanity, I've got a problem too in living a life in poverty and obscurity for most of his days, he was saying to those of us who struggle financially, who struggle with the obscurity that we feel, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem too. In suffering rejection and loneliness, in being falsely accused, he was saying to those struggling relationally with a justice system that doesn't understand you, saying, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem too. In suffering pain and abuse, he was saying to those who struggle physically, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem too. And in his crucifixion, he was saying to all of us who struggle with sin and shame that just won't let go, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem too. That's what Jesus says to you. That's the heart of God for you. If you've got a problem, I've got a problem too. And no matter if you are at the the horizon of the heavens, which is a little better way to translate chapter 1, verse 9, if you're at the farthest place you could be, if you're where no one can reach you, I will bring you back. This is what Nehemiah's heart reveals. The very heart of a God who makes our problems his problem. And what I want to look at in our very last point here is what happens when you make someone else's problems your problems? What happens to Nehemiah? What what happens in his life when he's made someone else's problems his problems? When he's caught a vision for having yourself and others rebuilt in the Lord. What happens? I think we see three things here. You pray, you plan, and you risk. That's what Nehemiah does in chapters one and two. Nehemiah is constantly praying in this whole book, but even in our passage. In one, uh, chapter one, verse four, it says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's trying to get at this idea that this is an ongoing action. That's what our translation is trying to convey, that this is something that was a habit that this was a way of life for him, that this is who he was becoming. He was continually a person of prayer. It becomes an ongoing way of life for him. And in verses 5 through 11, we get to see what this prayer life of Nehemiah was like. It had three parts to it. He acknowledges, he owns, and he asks. He acknowledges the God who can handle the problems. He owns personal and community problems. And he asks God to make their problems his problem. Look with me. In verse 5. He talks to a God who can handle all these problems. He says, God of heaven, great and awesome, whose love and commitment doesn't fail. He is redirecting his heart to someone who can handle these problems. Next, he owns not just their problems out there we all like to do that amen i can i can own society's problems family's problems people's problems no problem you get how much time do you have right let's name other people's problems then it gets to my problems very quiet very short list right he owns not just their problems Verses 6 through 7, he says, we have sinned against you. Maybe a a more literal way of saying what the ancient language says is we offended offensively against you. We've done things really wrong. But he doesn't just say they've done things really wrong. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 6. But he doesn't just stop at owning all these things and sit down in despair. He asks that this great God of heaven would do something about these things. He asks that God would make our problems his problems. In verse 8 and following, he says, remember, remember where you said to us that if we acknowledged that we've got a problem, you would come and you would find us and you would bring us home. This is a template for our own prayers, for our own prayers, for God to rebuild the mess in our lives, the mess in our world, that we would acknowledge a God who can do something about it, that we would own the ways that we and others have broken down and that we would ask him to do something else. And this is a beautiful formula because one, it gets our eyes off of me. One thing our culture loves to do is trust in our ability to figure it out. And another beautiful thing that this gives us is the ability to own all the ways that we just can't do it. The ways that we mess up, it forces the gospel into our hearts, not a gospel of earning and achieving where we can never make huge mistakes or we can never have offended offensively against people, against a whole people group. This gives us the opportunity to say, yes, that was me. And yes, God is the one who is going to bring me home from there because I am going to trust that he remembers what he said he would do. That no matter if I have offended offensively, if I have cast him off, he will find me and bring me home. It gives us the ability to be broken, messy people. To be people who have contributed to the mess, not people who have just stood far off and said, yeah, that's messy. But to be people who can own the ways that we are a mess. This is a beautiful template for our own prayers. But Nehemiah does not stop At prayer. Though prayer is deeply critical and important, he also plans. And I know some of my planners just got excited, right? You're like, five-year plan, 10-year plan, I'm ready. This is the part where we get to use our planning, not in place of praying, but alongside, after it. In verses, uh, chapter 111 through 2, 8, shows how Nehemiah must have made plans to see the city of God rebuilt. He is asking God in this prayer in verse 11, help me today when I ask about this. This wasn't a spur of the moment thing. He had thought about this. He had settled on it. He was going to ask the king. And the way he asked the king shows us that he had very specific things. He had thought through what would happen, the roadblocks that would come, the people that would get in his way, the supplies that he had need. He had put time and effort into thinking about what it would take to see this place rebuilt. He didn't just wing it. He planned it. He put effort in like you do when you care. None of us have to work that hard at planning for something we care. I'm sure if you took the log of activity from your phone, from your email, whatever it might be, It would not be that hard to see the things that you care about because you have spent time on them. You plan around doing the things that you want to do. Nehemiah plans because his heart is dragging him into these things. It's so hard to plan when we don't care. Nehemiah is following a heart that has been changed, a heart that has entered into this news. He's being driven towards the things that he cares about. And then he takes risks to see the prayers and the plans that he has made actually come to life. He takes risks to see the vision of a rebuilt church, a rebuilt people of God come to life. Again, it would have been a risk to ask this king this. There was no due process, right? You were a foreign exile in the service of a king. If he didn't like you, there was no appealing to the Supreme Court. Whatever happened to you happened. This was a risk for him to try to do this. He puts himself on the front line. He makes their problems his problem. And he risks his life for his city, his home, his vision. And he does it through the energizing power and confidence that he has that the God of heaven, as our passage calls him, is at his back. See, just because we start acting does not mean that God stops. Just because you have started trying to do something, started trying to fix sin in your life, trying to fix relationships, trying to fix whatever it may be in our world, it does not mean that because we have started acting that God has now stopped. That God said, yep, great plan, run with it, I'll see you at the end. No. No. He believes that the God of heaven has his back. He prays even while he's risking. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I was talking to the king and I prayed. He believes that the God of heaven who sees all these things is with him, behind him, as he is taking these risks. That God is with him in the risk. He is with him in that room. He is making Nehemiah's problems his problems. Why would he stop now when he is just getting started? I want to encourage you to ask yourself that same question. When you start to doubt God being willing to help you rebuild in your life, your relationships, your friendships, your family, whatever it is, why would he stop now? If he has made my problems his problems, if I can look at Jesus and see just how deeply committed he is to entering into my life, into my pain, that he would not just become like me, but that he would die for me, like me, that if he would step all the way in to do that, why would he stop now? This is the God that we have at our back, the God of heaven who also became the God of a manger, of the cross. We see this God through Nehemiah and we also see through Nehemiah God giving him a blueprint for how we can start our own rebuilding, that we can pray as a people and as individuals. We can plan as people and as individuals and we can risk as a whole people and as individuals. This is the blueprint we are going to start to use, CTK, to move forward in rebuilding, to pray, plan, and risk. And this is the beautiful thing, is that God gives you the blueprint. We don't have to come up with it. We don't have to brainstorm. We don't have to do a a vision-casting retreat to try to figure out what way God would give us to start moving forward. We don't have to invent it. So in closing, how do we start using it? I'm gonna give you baby steps because baby steps are so good. Baby steps get us going, there's momentum, there's energy. I wanna give you two things to do practically to start praying, planning, and risking, rebuilding your life and the life of our church and our city. I want you to write and start. Two things, write, And start, right, I want you to write this template down, literally. I don't care if you put it on your phone, if you put it on a post-it, on your wall, on your door, in your car. I want you to write it down. Write down, pray, plan, and risk, and put it somewhere that you are going to see it. At least once a week. Maybe every day during the week. Put that somewhere, and that's all you have to do. Not asking you to do more than that, but I am asking you to do that, that one thing, and just let that stare at you. Let those three words stare you in the face every day and remind you of your direction for rebuilding. Just let it be on your mind. Let this be the thing that maybe over the next several months, maybe four months, captures your heart and your vision. Pray, plan, risk. Write that down and then start. Start praying. Step one of Nehemiah's three-part prayer, to acknowledge. Remember a God, acknowledge a God who can handle whatever problems I, we have. Not asking you to do more than that. Not asking you to start planning how we would fix these things, to start risking how we would fix these things. But to just acknowledge the God who can do something about these things, to start remembering Mm -hmm. him. If all you did is repeat verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 in your prayer life in the next four months, I would be so thrilled. You'd be amazed how deeply your connection to God might seem different in your life, might seem richer, stronger, fuller if we just entered in to the God of heaven who remembers his people. So please take these baby steps. Let's start moving together towards these things. It did not happen overnight for Nehemiah. I do not expect it to happen overnight for me or for you. But we are going to get to take small steps together before the God of heaven. Let's pray. I'm gonna give you just a moment to have some time of prayer between just you and God about these things. Thank him for the ways that he has made your own problems. His problems. Confess the ways that you just haven't cared about rebuilding some things in your life. Or ask him to make this problem that you have in this moment more his own, that you might feel that truly. Let's pray. God, we do acknowledge you as the God of heaven, that we sit under your gaze, that we sit under your love. We thank you that you came near. God, we just equally acknowledge and confess there are so many ways, but we are nowhere near you in our hearts. That we're thinking of a thousand other things that we are uh, controlled and crushed by so many fears that are not your fears that would vanish if we truly trusted in you. And yet it's so hard to shake these things, God. So would you shake them loose from us? that we might again be a city on a hill, that we might be a light to the nations, that we might be a place where people could know you personally by your name. And so it's in your name that we pray, amen. I invite you to stand as you're able and we're gonna sing a song of response before we come and take communion. Let's stand and sing.